And when I was in elementary school, my favorite subject was math. Believe it or not, I, I did very well, as a matter of fact. If there was a math B to be held, I would be the, one of the last guys standing, if not the last one standing. I, Mr. Pitlick, Mr. Young, some of the best math teachers in the world, and, and I was in favor w- with those guys. Great guys. Uh, loved, loved math in elementary school. Then I went to high school. They replaced the, the numbers with letters and forget it. After that, it was just all downhill for me. I, I had a lot of reasons why I didn't do well. Uh, my teacher, I'll call Mr. H. Mr. H, uh, I had him for Algebra 1 and Algebra 2, lucky me. He came in every day, it seemed hungover. He had this long, greasy hair, same green leisure suit. He smelt of, of cigarettes and body odor. And when he would come to you, you'd ask him a question. He'd come and he'd open his mouth and it was like, oh, my God, I got it. I got it figured out. You know, nothing was worth this torture. Uh, also, I didn't have a whole lot of motivation at home. My mom and dad, I'm not sure why, but they've never valued grades or I think that, I don't know if they've ever even asked me about my grades, and it's not because I was an A student, let me tell you. As long as the school was not calling with some discipline issue that has happened from time to time, they were happy with with that. Um, I had no internal motivation either. You know, I did what people do to things they don't understand. I, I relegated it as foolishness. You know, this is so stupid. Who's ever going to use this? You know, some physicist or an engineer, someone who doesn't understand how to use a computer or a calculator. Those are the people that are going to use this stuff. And so, but I had to graduate. And so I did what I had to do to try to squeak out a, a, a grade that passed. Several years later, I got done with college. And I was feeling really bad that I wasted my high school time because I'm I mean, look at me. I think I'm an intelligent person, kind of. I can get this. I, if I would just have applied myself. and on a, So I en- enrolled uh, in the at Bastion of Academic, ec- Academic Excellence, Thornton Community College. And, and I had a teacher who was a great teacher. I mean, she didn't stink. You know, she smelled breath smelled like, like, like dentine. You know, I thought, oh, this was great. And I was, had the motivation, because I sank some money to get this class. I wanted to learn the language of the universe so I could know God better. And I applied myself incredibly, and I bombed. Oh, man. I came to the inevitable conclusion, at least I suppose, that there's a gene somewhere, a math gene. And I just didn't have it. You know, there's a DNA thing somehow, and there's that little piece that kind of helps you understand, and I don't have one of those. Uh, there, there's a gift. And I didn't get that either. And, and so I just, I, forget it. I'm done. And, you know, a lot of folks think that way about spiritual growth, don't we? You know, we, we give it a shot. We try. We got all the sincerity in the world. And we promise. And we sign the card. And we come forward. And we, we can't be more sincere. But we fall on our face. And we do everything we can to see just a little bit of progress. And the next day it's regressed and we've actually backed up. And we're going, what is this about? There must be a gene for spiritual growth somehow that I don't have. There's a spiritual DNA thing. And I didn't get that. There's a gift that for whatever reason God bypassed me with, I can't add. That's what we come down to. Now, we got a problem with that. First of all, Second Peter lets us know. When he, when he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, that this is a command. Uh, we don't have a choice. God has commanded us. He doesn't say, you know, I want you to give this a shot and see if this works for you, you know, and how your personality is and see if you can do this. You know, just try it. He doesn't say that. It's a command, imperative, add to your faith. You and I have got this command. 
But yet we try and it doesn't work. So we've got one of two conclusions. Either A, God is just a sadist. You know, he gives us this big thing to do that we can't do. We just, we just don't have it within us to pull off. And so, you know, why would he do this? Well, maybe he's just, I mean, this is really where religion gets a bum rap, right? It's all these rules that no one can really keep anyways, but we kind of pretend we're keeping them and try to help other people see that we are when we really are not. And we think of this as God is up there just kind of smiling or laughing or doing something, taking some sort of crazy pleasure and are stumbling around. Either that's A or B, we're missing something. I'm going to vote for B. I think scripture votes for B. There's there's a piece missing, and we've been in the series, it all adds up, and uh, it really talks about sanctification and add to your faith, you know, goodness and knowledge and and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. We've got this command, we've got to add these things, because if we've add these things, we're never going to fall. If we add these things, we're going to be effective in our our life. If we we add these things, we're going to have assurance, Uh, all of it. So, So we know we're supposed to. But we struggle with it. There's a piece of the equa- equation that's, that you can't subtract, though. If you have this piece missing, you know what? You're never, ever going to be able to add. Because part of the reality is you can't add. Nor can I. And yet God has commanded us to. So we're going to look at, at a principle th- this morning that ties this whole thing together. It's a principle that you've got to get. Otherwise, what you're going to be adding to your faith, if you're trying to do this, is you're going to be adding despair and frustration and anxiety and anger. And that, that's not in the list. That's We're not supposed to go there. This, this, this uh, principle, the Apostle Paul said, and these are his words, he said this is the secret to successful Christian living or, or to victorious Christian living. Those are his words. We'll look at that in a second. Hudson Taylor, if you remember, great missionary to China, started the China Inland Mission. As he was journeying in his faith, trying to add to his faith, he became incredibly frustrated until he discovered a, a version of this principle that's come to be known as Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. And so if you've got your Bibles this morning, open up with me to, to Matthew chapter 14. And we're going we're gonna to just begin to, to scrape the surface of this principle. But it can be a life-altering principle in your faith. Matthew chapter 14. Turn there, please. And let me give you the uh, background. Uh, John the, the Baptist had just been beheaded. Now, now, John the Baptist was not simply Jesus' cousin and Jesus' good friend. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. So Jesus, knowing the timetable, he knows, John the Baptist, I'm next. And so Jesus gets his apostles together and says, we got to get out of here. we got to go process this. we got to grieve for John the Baptist properly. We have to think about this for a little bit. We just need a way from the stress and trials of ministry for a while to rest. Now, actually, I think what Jesus is doing is he's got a very significant lesson that he wants to teach his disciples, that he wants to teach us. And so they get in a boat and they head the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee and they plan on going to a desert area. Not a lot of folk in the desert. They just don't hang out there. It's not good for them to hang out there. So they're going to get there, though, because it's going to be like a desert retreat. And so they take off. But the people get word that Jesus is going to the desert, the other side of the, the lake. And so they, the boat pulls in and there's thousands of people waiting out in the desert for Jesus. Now, I'm thinking now this is speculation, but I'm thinking Jesus is not going 
what are these people doing here? I'm just trying to get away for crying out loud. They follow me. I think Jesus is going right on time. I think he has engineered this in his providence as God because of his lesson that he's trying to teach his apostles. And so Jesus being the ever kind, ever gracious uh, uh, master, servant, shepherd, teaches the people. He then works some miracles, healings among them. It's evening time. This brings us to verse 15 of Matthew chapter 14. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowd away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Now... This is, uh, the humor, the humor in this is, is amplified a little bit. If you've got your Bibles, you can check out verse 21. I don't have it on the screen. But it tells you how big this, this conference is. 5,000 men there. And it's not a men's conference, because it says beside women and children. So how many people are there? Well, give each man a wife. I think culturally we can do that. Puts it up to 10,000. Any kids? Uh, you're dealing with maybe 20,000 plus people at this thing. This is a astronomical crowd. This is huge. I mean, in our day of massive stadiums, it's not all that big. But especially here, Jesus goes overboard and supplying a gazillion people. Well, 20,000. And they're looking at these people thinking, my goodness, it's late. Send them away. And Jesus says, I want you to feed them. And so they come up with this. This brown bag lunch, parallel passages, says they got it from a little kid. Now, our Sunday school lessons will say the little boy came up to the apostles and I've got my lunch. Can Jesus have it? Well, we don't know that, really. Maybe these guys surrounded this little kid and said, give us your lunch, kid. You know, I don't know. Jesus told us to feed the people. We've got to figure out how to do it. So they get the lunch. They're bigger than the kids, so they get the lunch. And, and, and you need to understand the resources here. Two fish, not two sperm whale. Not two 10-pound bass. Think like two sardines. Five loaves of bread. Not big, massive. Uh, think of something between a vanilla wafer and a breadstick at Olive Garden. I mean, we're talking five. Of, this is a little boy's lunch. This would not fill a, a grown man. And this is all they got, this little brown bag lunch. Saying, Jesus, what are you telling us? Feed these people. We look at the people. There's 20,000 people here. We got this one. How are we supposed to feed the people? Send them away. Get them, tell them to go home. Tell them to go find a store someplace. And Jesus says, no, no, they don't need to do that. You do it. You know, if, if in fact they were looking for a Sam's Club. Again, they're in a remote place. There's no Sam's Club. They can't. These people don't need a sack lunch. They need pallets of food, right? And if there was a Sam's Club, parallel passage says that someone pulled out their calculator and tabulated things and said it would take eight months worth of wages so everyone could have a taste. But Jesus still commands them. No, we don't, you, you feed them. What do they do? Can you imagine if these folk would have uh, given it their best shot? They're creative people. I mean, hard workers. These guys are not slackers. So what do they do? Think it out. Get me creative. Try to figure out. Every, every fourth person gets a crumb. Every third person gets a lick on the sardine. Okay? This is the way it's going to go. This is probably the best they could have done. Sometimes I think in our spiritual lives, we, we look at Jesus telling us to add to our faith. Add, add, add. And we look at our resources and we go, God, you're asking me to add to my, you're telling me to be perfect as you're perfect? <laughs> I'll forget that one, right? You know, forgive as you forgive. 
a love as you love? Who can even possibly get just my research? You, you crazy? It's not going to happen. And he says it with a straight face, though. So down in verse eighteen, Jesus says after they're befuddled, they're not sure what to do. He says, "Bring them here to me." He said the little lunch thing. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Notice they didn't just taste. They were full. Have some more. Oh, I can't eat anymore. They were full. They were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men, not to mention women and children. A couple things notice about this. Jesus said, bring me the, 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 the food. And yet he also said, you do it. Now, they could have brought the little sack lunch to Jesus, gave it to Jesus and said, hey, I want you to know the crowd is bigger than you thought. I want you to know those, those sardines are smaller than you thought. And just kind of, OK, we just gave it to Jesus. We do this. We prayed about it. You know, we laid it at his feet. And he's sovereign God. I hope he feeds everybody. He can do it. No question about that. But we let him. So we'll see if he does it. If he doesn't, oh, you know what? Who can understand the ways of God? It's just, well, it's, it's him. And they let it go. On the other hand, if they would have tried with everything they had, given their, their small, minimal portions, they wouldn't have done anything either. Christianity, we do one of two things. We either give it to Jesus, let go and let God. We pray about it. Maybe we fast about it. We, we, we say, God, please make me godly. Good prayer. You ought to be praying that prayer. Great prayer. And Lord, I, I want you to make me godly. I'm going to fast while you, I want you to make me godly. Good prayer. Then we wait for him to do it. Meanwhile, he says, add to your faith godliness. You say, no, no, Jesus, you do it for me. He says, no, 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 listen, I want you to train yourself to be godly. And we say, no, Jesus, I want you to do it. It's a whole lot easier if you do it. And he says, no, I want you to be holy as I'm holy. It's, it's a command. Other handle in the church, another category, another group of people are those who, man, we're going to be godly for God. We're going to do it. And so we find the, 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 the books and we find the program and we find them. We muster all the discipline we can and we try and we get, we're going to get there. We're going to get it done. And there's often a lot of frustration. And the most stubborn among us keep going with little results. And Christianity often will fall one of those two categories. But, but here's the deal. Jesus says, while the work is beyond you, you, you can't do it. You know, he's smiling. These guys feed 20,000 with a sack lunch. He knows they can't. It's beyond you. It can't be done without you. You have to do it. You have to bring this about. Now, let's look at the life of Peter for a second. Peter wrote Second Peter. He understands this stuff. He wrote the Add to Your Faith. He knows this. And John chapter 14. Great, great, great passage. John chapter 14. Jesus just came into Jerusalem on the, the donkey. Triumphal entry. And remember, his first three years of ministry, everyone said, you should be king. And he's like, Shh, no, 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 no. But here, he comes in a big celebrative time, Passover time, and he, he organizes a parade, and he comes up on a little donkey, messianic expectations. The people got the Hosanna thing going, and the, the palms waving, and it says that all of Jerusalem came out to see him. They were all pumped about Jesus. He is the Messiah. He can rise people from the, raise people from the dead. Of course, he can take care of the Romans. Who can be... He, takes care of the Sanhedrin. This guy is incredible. He's on big billboards, you know, vote for Jesus, Messiah. And everyone is there. He's the guy. 
And so that night, they're in the upper room, and I can just see the apostles all high-fiving themselves. Yeah, yeah, the kingdom's going to be in any day now. We're going to take out Rome. This is it. Fulfill the Old Testament. Yeah, we got Jesus on our side. And then Jesus kind of unplugs the party, and he says, you guys, I'm going away. And they're like, um... (laughs) Do you mean you've got to go to the bathroom? Oh, yeah, okay. We'll be right here waiting for you, Jesus. Will you get back? And he said, no, 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 no. I'm leaving you. Well, you want to pray for a couple hours. You know, Jesus does that kind of thing. He prays for, okay, well, you know, we're ready to sit down for the Passover meal. But okay, that's, we'll, we'll see you when you get done. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm leaving you. I'm going away. He said, well, where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to the Father's. Well, we don't know where the fathers is, but we, your followers, we follow, we'll, we'll go with you. And he says, no, 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 where I'm going, you can't come. So, well, well, how long are you going to be gone, Jesus? He said, could be a while. You can see their confusion. Lord, Lord, what about the Hosanna? All the Jerusalem is ready to, I mean, it's ready to, what are we going to tell these people? And what about us? We gave everything to follow you. And you're supposed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You're the Messiah. And you raised people from the dead. And, and you're taking off on us? I mean, what's going on? I mean, pardon us if we're just a bit confused. We don't understand. What are we supposed to do? And then in chapter 14, John, verse 16. 14, 15, 16. Great passage. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. A counselor means to walk alongside of. He says, I've walked alongside you. I'm going to ask the Father to give you another to walk alongside you. By the way, this is a side point. Um, We don't believe that there's a God who wears the Father hat sometimes, throws it down, puts on the Jesus hat sometimes, throws it down, puts on the Spirit's hat one time. We believe in a triune God, one God in three persons. Here you've got Jesus praying to the Father, talking about the Father. They're going to send another counselor. You can circle the word another. There's two Greek words for another. One is another, the same kind as, like, you know, stick a quarter in that gumball machine and get another, the same thing. It's the exact same thing, thing after thing. But this another is distinct from, similar, but different than. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. Now he's talking about, I'm going to come and reside in you, but yet there's going to be another counselor. You know him? We don't know what you're talking about. We know, you, you know, he's talking about himself coming through the, via the Holy Spirit. Now, for these guys, this, this promise was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. If you've never read Acts chapter 2, you ought to. It's a great story. But, but um, these, these, these guys, as they, as they uh, were looking for the Holy Spirit, uh, it came into them in Acts chapter 2. For us, it comes the moment you come to know Christ. From that point on, there's a lot of passages we could look at. Just a lot we could look at. But Ephesians chapter 1. Let me, let me read this for you. There's a myriad. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And so you also were included in Christ... When you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. It's promised back in John 14. With, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, uh, I'm sure this didn't happen to you. But if you remember back to when you were you were dating, or maybe that's a week ago, maybe maybe a long time ago, I don't know. But but you want to get out of a bad relationship. 
Now, this is other people have done this kind of thing. But you want to get out of a bad relationship, and you really don't want to tell the person they're a loser, therefore you want to get rid of them, but that just sounds too bad. You know, it's, 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 not, it's not good PR. And so the way that usually comes across, maybe you've, you've done this, is, you know, you deserve so much better than me. Yeah. You've heard this? Maybe you've heard, is that what they were doing? Yeah, yeah, that's probably what they were doing. You deserve so much better than me, and I'm a loser, and, I, and you deserve better, and so I'm going to cut you loose so you can find someone so much better than I am. And uh, uh, that's disingenuous. That is not uh, truthful. We would not expect Jesus to do that, right? We would expect Jesus to be very truthful, straight up, clear. John uh, 16. Verse 7, same conversation. Same conversation. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. They're still on the subject about him leaving. It's for your good that I am going away. Oh, Paul, please. Now, it's for our good that, that you're going away. Right, right. I got it, Jesus. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I have a feeling Jesus isn't lying there, but boy, it sounds strange, isn't it? Verse chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus again says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Oh, police, Jesus, greater things than what you're doing. Oh, police, you don't expect us to believe this. Well, if you look at Peter, when he was in the presence of Jesus, what could Peter do? Well, he could do some pretty remarkable stuff, couldn't he? He could walk on water. Try that without being in the presence of Jesus, right? You're in trouble. Uh, and when he was in the presence of Jesus and walk on water, walked on water and his faith began to sink, he began to sink. But in the presence of Jesus, even though his faith was weak, he was saved. I think he learned at that point that when I'm in the presence of Jesus, there's no wave, there's no natural disaster, there's no Roman guard, there's no virus, there's no cancer. So there's nothing that can hit me that hasn't come through his hands. I'm safe. In the, in, in the presence of Jesus. When he's in the presence of Jesus, he was bold and courageous. Remember Gethsemane, the old temple guard comes, he uses this little dagger. Oh, God, he's going to take them all on. He's kind of bold. When he's in the presence of Jesus, he says some pretty remarkable things. Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do people say I am? And Peter looks at him and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The cool thing is Jesus responds to that. He says, wow. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because... Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now check out that passage, Matthew 16, and you do not find a theophany. You don't find God coming down or an angelic visitation. Tell them he's the Messiah. I don't think that, that Peter knew that that came from God the Father. Oh, really? Really? But when you're in the presence of Jesus, you know what? You've got a direct pipeline. You can say things that come from the Father. You can understand that which most people can't understand when you're in the presence of Jesus. Now, later on in Gethsemane, we know what happens. They all, the apostles, they abandon Jesus. And he's not in the presence of Jesus anymore. How does, how does Peter act? Well, Matthew 26. Check this out. You, you know this very well. But check this out. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. Servant girl. I mean, this is this is as low as you can be. A servant little girl. Some people, even at this time, would classify their livestock much higher on the scale of, of worth than a servant girl. I mean, this was as low as you could go. She's confronting Peter. She says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. 
But he denied it before them. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Where's the courage there? This guy's a wimp. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. He's not 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 the picture of courage, right? He is wimpy. And we know that this transports into Acts chapter 1. When Acts starts off, the apostles, you know where they're at? They're upstairs in a locked room, doors locked. I think they're hiding underneath the table because they know the Sanhedrin just killed Jesus. And maybe they're flashing back these, these pictures in their mind when Jesus was debating with the Sanhedrin guys and making them look foolish, just, just, just answering them biblically. And they're standing right next to Jesus, eye to eye with the Sanhedrin guy going, <laughs> deal with that. Yeah, yeah. And they're thinking, now Jesus is gone. Surely the Sanhedrin guys are going to remember this. We're in trouble. Oh, we are in so much trouble. And so they're afraid. Day one in Acts, but day two in Acts, the room is empty. The door is swinging on its hinges, and every one of those guys is out in the streets boldly proclaiming Christ. And you've got to ask yourself, what happened? Well, a coin both sides, two sides. One One side of the coin is Jesus rose from the dead. The second side is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, if you finish the book of Acts, you know that they were able to have greater courage. Oh, let me, let me, I don't know if we, I'm going to say this, and go this we're going to go this way anyway. Acts chapter 5. Check this out. This is great. Peter's now standing in front of the Sanhedrin. Okay, after he's got the Holy Spirit, he's standing in front of these guys. The most powerful ruling ruling class right there in, in Palestine other than the Romans who kind of handed the leading to these guys. These are the ones that killed Jesus. In verse 28 of, of, of Acts 5, it says, we, they, the Sanhedrin's talking. They said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. That's not very wimpy. That's pretty bold. Oh my goodness, Peter. If you you, you read through, you find that his teaching impacted thousands. They took the gospel all over the world in the book of Acts. Much greater works than they had ever done before. They were able to say that which was much greater than they had ever, ever done before. Now this is what's good for us. Because in the presence of an internal Jesus through the Holy Spirit... They were able to do greater things than when they were in the presence of a physical uh, bodily Jesus. Now, I think sometimes, you know what? Yeah, if I was one of those guys, the apostles, and I could hang out with bodily Jesus, I'd be pretty bold too. But Jesus doesn't lie when he says, it's for your good that I go away. If I go away and you get the counselor, you know what? You can do greater things than these. Because he's residing right here. Now, Paul says it this way. Let me see if I can flip this thing around. In Philippians. We got the Philippians. Yeah, we go. I have learned the secret of being content. 
in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. When he says we can do everything through him, that does not mean that you can ace trigonometry. It does not mean that you can run the Boston Marathon and win. It does not mean you can fly like a bird. Uh, We have limitations. It does mean, according to context, that through him, in him, leaning into him, you know what? You can add to your faith. You can be content no matter what the circumstance. You don't have to be limited by the fear that limits us so often. We don't have to be limited by the the, the sin that, that often ties us down. And Paul says that the secret here, he calls it a secret, is knowing that he's within us through him. I try to do it on my own. I'm not going to make it. But through him, I will. Now, this was really driven home uh, to me, I think, last year. My, my, my boy, Andrew, uh, who's not here, he's at the junior retreat, so I can talk about him. Um, he uh, was in seventh grade last year. He, uh, Mercyhurst has this program that if you can test into it, they'll let you into their high school like every other day. He tested in. It's real, real cheap, actually. I think their goals are trying to recruit kids for high school. But he's in this thing, and he got into a AP Algebra ninth grade class. He's in seventh grade. And I remember one of his first days, he brings this stuff home going, oh, I don't have a... I, I just, I, Dad, help me. I'm not so sure that's going to help us, Drew. I'm not sure that you're going to get very far with this one. But I know who can. Bob and Eloise Hostetler have been good friends of ours since we, before we came here. Just dear people. They moved away about uh, several months ago to Virginia. If you know Bob, you know he got his Ph.D. in mathematics from Penn State. He was a mathematics professor at at Penn State Barron. Bob has co-authored myriads of textbooks on trigonometry, Algebra 1, Algebra 2, calculus. He knows this stuff like nobody knows this stuff. And so Drew would regularly, I mean we're talking multiple times a week, call up Mr. Hosteller, Skype with Bob Hosteller, uh, saying, help me understand this. And Bob could have done it for him, could he? Yeah, absolutely, peace. He could have done this easy for him, but he wouldn't. He helped Drew struggle at different places and wrestle and walk slowly through. He watched Drew fight through because he knew he was starting to get it. He was leading him to the right way. And obviously Drew ended up at the end of the year, very, done, did very well with it because he had the right guide. Now, the wild thing is, is we add to our faith. We have another counselor. We've got Jesus within us. And if we try to add to our faith on our own with our own little lunch, it's just going to be a frustration thing. But as we lean into the spirit within us, I mean, Jesus is saying, why do you think I came and took residence in you? Was it because, you know, I think you're going to some cool places and I want to go see the world? I mean, I moved into this fixer-upper. And I'm rolling up my sleeves. You feed the people. Do it. Let's get to work. Add to your faith. But you've got to know, you don't have the reserves to do it on your own. So bring them to me. As we lean daily into him, seeking him, conscious of his presence on a regular basis as we add. You know what? We can add these things to our faith.